So we got this equipment on a Thursday. We had a customer flying in on Monday for a demo. So in my my very, very naive mind, I'm like, okay, if the machine arrives on Thursday, I'll build it. I'll teach myself how to do the design, how to set up like all the spin rates and whatnot and make sure I get a clean cut. I'll wire it. I'll assemble it. I'll test it. We'll be good to go by Monday. No problem. I might've slept like two hours between that Thursday and Monday morning and we somehow got it done. From the University of Alabama's Colorado's College of Business, it's Bama Means Business, a podcast that reveals amazing stories from those people both inspire and make a difference in our community. I'm Cole Stevens. On the show today, Andrew Asher. Andrew is the CEO of Lucid Drone Technologies and was recently named as a Fortune 30 under 30 CEO. He sat down to talk to us about the startup world and what it was like starting a company in college. I hope you enjoy part one of our two-part series. Where does this podcast find you today? I'm currently in Charlotte, North Carolina at our office. Okay, awesome. So many people don't know what drones are or may have seen them flying around the air at some point taking pictures. Can you talk more about what your drone company does and what you guys focus on? Yeah, so cool. I think you started in the perfect place. When people think of drones today, they think of these smaller platforms that carry a camera. And the main applications are all centered around taking pictures and videos. The way I like to think about it is drones are supposed to collect data, or at least traditionally that's how drones have been built. At Lucid, we've got a much different take on drones. We're focused on building these much larger industrial size models that physically affect the world around them by doing some type of productive task. And our first product is actually a drone that can clean buildings. So anything from washing windows to roofs, our drones can relocate workers to the ground and clean at great heights in a fraction of the time. No, that's, that's awesome. So it's more of the industrial side of drones, correct? Exactly. And our, what we love is building drones that do productive things. We also love data, but that's a smaller part of our story. Obviously, we'll dive into that when we get there. But you're currently in Charlotte. Did you always grow up in Charlotte or where are you from originally? I grew up in Northern Virginia, not too far outside of DC and found my way down to Davidson, North Carolina, which is about 20 minutes north of Charlotte for college. I uh, played baseball back in the day. I joke I was once athletic, but I was always a better nerd than I was an athlete. So I ended up in the right place at the end of the day. So when we go back to your college career, obviously playing baseball, that's a, that's a full-time job right there. That's a commitment. How did yeah. you balance school you know, sports, as well as coming up with this whole idea while you're in college? I think it all comes back to discipline. Um, I hate the concept of the word busy. If you ever ask somebody like, hey, how are you doing? And the first <laughs> thing they volunteer is, oh, I'm busy, but I, I'm doing okay. And it, there's almost like this pride around being busy. And I noticed it a lot in college. I never liked it because I think to the outside, I lived a busy life. I was, to your point, playing a D1 sport, doing a double major. I actually worked three part-time jobs too, and then I was starting Lucid. So there weren't a lot of free hours in the day, but I'm, I just love what I was doing. I, I love playing sports. I enjoyed my classes. The part-time jobs I worked, I 
I mean, I got paid, so that mattered, but I also enjoyed the work I was doing. So I think part of it was early on, I adopted a creator's mindset. Like everything I was doing, I had self-elected into. So I had the choice to stop doing any of those things. I didn't have to work those jobs. Nobody was forcing me to be a college athlete. These were things I enjoyed and I wanted to do. So it was this mindset shift of, hey, like nobody's forcing me to do it. These are things I enjoy, so I should actually take pleasure in them. Um, But beyond that, it's just kind of cultivating a mindset of gratitude because I've always found that gratitude's the secret ingredient for life, right? It can take whatever you have and turn it into enough. So again, maybe it was a, a late night or something wasn't going well with a drone or we just lost a game. At the end of the day, like the life I was living and we just in general live, we're in the top 1% of humanity and compared to the greater issues that afflict humanity, like hunger, homelessness, you name it. The problems are almost trivial. No, I think it's a great point. That's not about being busy, but it's having that drive to push through even the worst things that can happen to you in a day. I want to bring back to sort of like where you grew up and let's say high school for you. So from what yeah. I know, your dad was a teacher at your high school. You were very motivated, like you said, a bit of a nerd. What was that like for you going into college, knowing that you're going to play a sport, but at the same time wanting to be involved in school and wanting to get hopefully good grades. So it's funny because I heard this expression in high school from different college athletes and former college athletes. They used to always say, when you go to college, you can have a great athletic experience, great academic experience, or great social experience. You can have two, but you can't have all three. And my perspective was always like, why not? Like, I, I think you should be able to have all three. Um, Maybe going back to the high school experience, I joke I was very fortunate to attend what I would label as a a country club high school. I mean, it was a phenomenal education. We had unbelievable facilities and I was lucky my dad was a teacher there and I got pointed in that direction. Um, But the, the beauty of it is it was really rigorous. Like I actually worked harder in high school in terms of like the input of hours and effort for my classes than I did in college. And Davidson's a very academic and rigorous school, but it gave me a good foundation so that I had a lot of time management skills and just like, we learned how to learn in high school, if that makes any sense, Um, which is such a funny concept because a lot of our educational system doesn't actually teach us how to learn. They want to teach us things, but the actual process of quickly um, experiencing new concepts, retaining them, and being able to share them with others. That was a skill set I was fortunate to refine in high school that helped me a lot in college. So this might be an offhand question, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like a lot like a Jesuit school. Yes, exactly. It was a Jesuit school, and that was probably my favorite part about the experience is we would be in the middle of a, a physics lesson, for example, and all of a sudden it would journey into a conversation about how to act with compassion, how to be a man for others. It was an all guy school um, for context. So I really appreciated that because the, the teachers took this like genuine interest in the student and their personal development beyond just their academic performance. So it was a very unique experience. And 
I was fortunate to also have a, a Jesuit educator as my father, who I got to go home with every day. That's awesome. I actually myself went to Regis Jesuit in Denver, Colorado. So really? very similar background. Fantastic. I, I loved it. it. Like you said, it was a lot yeah. of work, but I would do it all over again if I could. So Amen. getting back to your story, you're in college and you're double majoring, I believe in, is it business and something else? Uh, economics and Spanish. So an interesting pair. Was there any rhyme or reason for that combination or just because you could do it? So I joke, I probably went to Davidson a couple years too early because now they have a computer programming degree. The reason I wanted to do economics is I always loved numbers and problem solving. So it was a nice intersection of those two things. And then for Spanish, there are a couple of reasons. Um, one, I have a language mind. So in high school, I was like, oh, like Spanish just kind of came naturally and I enjoyed it. Um, so I thought it would be a good, good thing to double major with. But then two, uh, my wife, her side of the family is actually from Argentina. Mm-hmm. So I originally started taking Spanish in high school just to be able to uh, win over the affection of her parents more. They both speak English very well, but uh, they love that I was trying to learn Spanish. So that's why I continued that journey. That's awesome. So I played baseball for eight years. I was not good. I'll admit that. Like I, I tried to pitch. I had like three pitches. I did not make my high school team and that was it. I switched to volleyball. You yourself, what position did you play for baseball? I was a a left-handed pitcher. Okay. So the pitcher is sort of like the leader of a team when you're on the field, at least, because you are the one commanding the pace of the game and sort of like how the flow goes. Do you see that translating to you now as a leader and as a CEO of Lucid? There's so many parallels between a high-functioning athletic team, regardless of sport, and a high-functioning company culture, um, then I 100% see the parallels between the two. When I think about a lot of the best teams I was on, you had a group of selfless teammates who were very humble, who all rallied around like a common vision and passion. And a lot of times my best teams weren't the most talented teams. It was just the best group of guys who, you know, just had that great culture. So when I think about like leadership, I've got some very, very basic leadership philosophies. And I know many people will give you hundreds of pages worth of books to read, but like the three kind of central tenets of my leadership philosophy, like the first one's compassion. I've always believed that people will never care how much you know until they know how much you care. So by genuinely caring for your coworkers and their well-being, you get a lot more output and camaraderie from that being one of your central tenets. Um, the next one's curiosity. So I just ask a lot of questions. I'm always looking to learn, and I believe great ideas can come from anywhere, which really empowers our team. That's one of our big focuses is making sure everybody feels empowered in their role. Um, and then the last one's consistency, which to me has a lot of parallel to sports. I think as a good leader, you need to be a very consistent figure, whether things are going remarkably well or everything's on fire and you're running around like a fire van trying to put out um, whatever the fire of the day happens to be. Being that resource for your team to know like, hey, Andrew's going to show up every every day and he's going to control his attitude and effort. That's exactly how I approach sports. I never knew what kind of day I would have on the mound. 
And I had plenty of bad days. I'll be the first one to share that. But the one thing I knew I could control every day was the attitude and effort I had. I was going to put in and try to the best of my abilities. And I was just going to control my process, my training, my routine as much as possible. And the rest was going to happen. But being able to have that consistency is something I learned from sports that I've now applied to my business life. Gotcha. Transitioning from sports to business, where did this whole idea originate from? Like you're playing baseball, Larry <laughs> Davidson, and then all of a sudden you're like, I'm going to graduate in three years and start a business. Like, where is this Delta? Can you explain to me sort of that whole story and how that came to be? It's all a giant accident, let's call it, uh, and a whole lot of serendipity at play. I saw these window washers on a swing stage trying to clean at heights. The platform gets stuck in the wind, starts slamming against the side of the building. And it truthfully just felt like such an obvious thought. I didn't think it was profound at the time. And it was, again, going to that place of curiosity, which was, how could we leverage technology to make this safer, to make this more efficient? And I became really interested in wanting to solve that problem because I started to zoom out. I was like, well, I'm surrounded by all these buildings. Commercial real estate is one of the largest asset classes in the world, worth over $30 trillion globally. But we're still relying on these ancient tools to get the work done. And uh, again, I'm a nerd, so forgive me, but I'm going to nerd out for a second. As you study businesses and the history of innovation, I think what we see in the startup world is over the last two decades, a lot of focus has been all around software. Anywhere there's been a business that used to be run on pen and paper and spreadsheets, now you can write software to automate a lot of these functions and make them more efficient. I think the next frontier of innovation and like transformational impact is going to occur in the physical world. And think about this from an abstract level. How hard was it to build a mobile app back in 2008? Like you needed to be incredibly technical. It took a lot of time. And the features were lackluster at best. Building a mobile app now, you could use a no-code tool and somebody with an economics degree within the matter of a couple hours could have a pretty interesting product out the door. But then start to think about the physical space, like especially these service industries. Um, as a plumber, your job in the 1980s versus now, it's not significantly different. It's not significantly easier. We haven't had the same level of transformation for a lot of these traditional service-based industries like the cleaning industry. So that's where we're really focused and that's where we get really excited is just thinking about all the innovations left to happen in the physical world. No, that's, that's a great point is like that whole software as a service industry has really picked up that whole idea of like, can we get someone on a recurring revenue basis to give us money for something that we're making easier? And that's where, like, where you guys are filling that void for Washing, at least at this point, your drones are capable of doing that, the washing techniques, but I'm sure there's plans in the future to expand the capabilities of these drones. Yep. Let's just say, uh, depending on when this is going live, uh, today on the day we're recording, we're actually publicly announcing the next product. So I'm happy to share it because it will be live, which is, and um, we built a heavy lift delivery drone. No way. Capable of carrying up to 20 pounds, flying a pretty impressive radius and dropping the delivery package by a tether. Well, that's awesome. Congratulations. I can't wait to see more about that and read more into that capabilities. 
Thank you. We're, we're really excited. It's always been a part of our vision was to build this platform, this core technology that we could add different top hats on, or we call them payloads in the drone industry, as I'm sure you know, um, that could do these different tasks. So the first focus was building this platform that just so happened to fly in clean buildings. But now we can take the majority of that core technology to attach a new top hat to it that does another task. And this next example is delivering something. I think that's a phenomenal opportunity. And I can't wait to see the capabilities of this new drone. But getting back to the startup story and drone technology is not easy to understand, especially if you don't have a background in engineering or any kind of programming. From my own experience, there's a lot of different variables. You got different flight controllers, different electronic speed controllers, different motors, all these components that go into a drone. How did you learn? Like you're balancing everything. How did you initially build the prototype? If you, if I may call it that. So it's through a kind of an array of resources. One of the first things was I actually got a book on like building DIY hobby drones and it taught me more than I would have expected in a single book and helped me understand the overall architecture of a drone. Um, but beyond that, I, I joke that, that I got my uh, master's in engineering from Google and my PhD from YouTube because we live in an information economy and I was really able to teach myself the fundamentals of software or electrical and mechanical engineering to build our earliest versions of the drone using primarily free resources online, these drone building forums, watching all these drone build videos on YouTube. And then, I mean, most importantly, the School of Hard Knocks. The first drone I built, uh, I'll, I'll be very transparent in admitting this, I think was more duct tape and zip ties than it was carbon fiber. And it's transformed a lot. But again, I, I think we just at times bit off more than we could chew. And then we're like, okay, but let's find a way to figure it out anyway. And one story I, I love to share when people come to our warehouse, we got this CNC machine back in the summer of 2019. And that we've got multiple now, but this was our first one. And until then, I'd been doing like hand dremeling, cutting and drilling by myself, which no matter how many times you measure, it's never going to be as accurate as a computer would be. I didn't have a background in CNC machining. So we got this equipment on a Thursday and we had a customer flying in on Monday for a demo. So in my, my very, very naive mind, I'm like, okay, if the machine arrives on Thursday, I'll build it. I'll teach myself how to do the design, how to set up like all the spin rates and whatnot and make sure I get a clean cut. I'll wire it. I'll assemble it. I'll test it. We'll be good to go by Monday. No problem. I might've slept like two hours between that Thursday and Monday morning and we somehow got it done and it looked really, really good. And the worst part of this story is uh, one of my coworkers goes up to the drone and he looks at it and goes, wow, this looks really sturdy. And in his defense, he probably barely presses on the top of the drone and you see the landing gear legs just like flail out <laughs> to the side and the body of the drone hit the floor. And what I then learned is we were still using 3D printed parts for our landing gear legs. I didn't know yet that you could actually put more infill in the 3D printed parts to make them stronger. So again, it's just a lot of these really, really silly things um, where we just had to go through the experience, learn it the hard way, 
but then quickly iterate and improve from there. That is a hilarious story. I we love to see 3D printing, amazing yeah. technology, but it can be very structurally unsturdy if you're not careful with that infill right there. Yeah. Getting back to exactly. money. Money is a big problem. 80% of startups fail within the first five years. How did you find money while you're in college, have this idea, and building drones and getting these parts are, is not cheap. It's not like you're just programming on a computer. You're actually working with a physical tool. So where did this all come from and how did you get that going? Yeah, it's such an important question. And I think people need to talk more about this because access to capital is really, really difficult. And at times I wish I'm like, man, it would have been really cool to run a software business where I need a laptop and I'm good to go. Now, hardware is definitely harder. It's very, very fun and leads to some interesting competitive moats once you get it set up. But to answer your question, um, at the start, it was like personal capital. I had worked a lot of jobs, saved a good amount of money, and, and put a lot of my own resources into the company. Um, from there, the next source of capital for us was angel investors. And to be candid, we had next to nothing at the time. We had an idea, a market opportunity, and a very, very weak proof of concept product. Um, and reflecting back on it, I think the way we got that early capital was just by building relationships. And this is something I know when I'm like advising or coaching a really early stage founder is to lean into that. A lot of angel investors at the earliest stages, they're betting on, on the team. So they're betting on the individual behind the business, not necessarily the business itself. Now, it matters that I was wanting to build a drone company and not sell candy on the side of the road. That definitely helps. But at the end of the day, um, reflecting back on it and through conversations with these investors, they were like, well, I believe in Andrew. I think Andrew can figure this out. Um, I'm going to bet on him to, to go and do it. And that was something I was really uncomfortable with at the start. I didn't really like talking about myself or telling my story, but I've realized I had to be a lot more open with it. Um, so through that, again, we got our earliest angel investors, continue to just like de-risk the business idea. We started building our own technology. We went out and started doing the cleaning ourselves to show that, hey, it's really good. It's working well. People are willing to pay for this. And from there, we actually applied to Y Combinator, which is a startup accelerator out in San Francisco. And truthfully, that was like a springboard for us. Um, it was an opportunity for us to go and learn from some of the greatest startup minds. And at the end of this three-month program, they had what was known as Demo Day. There were thousands of investors who came to listen to a two-minute pitch of yours. And we were fortunate that after the, that day, we raised about a million dollars. So our four, first more significant chunk of money. And that allowed us to go and hire our early team, uh, who, I mean, they're just brilliant and We've kind of been off to the races ever since, just building great technology, trying our best to delight customers and grow as efficiently as we can and raise some growth capital along the way. That's Andrew Asher, CEO of Lucid Drone Technologies. And thanks so much for listening to the show today. If you're not a subscriber, do subscribe to our podcast wherever you get yours. And of course, check out our website at culverhouse.ua.edu learn more about the Colorado College of Business and what it has to offer. And as always, roll tide.